0: Top nine things your mom would never say. Number nine, how on earth can you see the TV sitting so far back? Number eight, yeah, I used to skip school a lot too. Things your mom would never say. Seven, just leave all the lights on, it makes the house look more cheery. Let me smell that shirt. Yeah, it's good for another week. Number five, go ahead and keep that stray dog, honey. I'll be glad to feed it and walk it every day. Number four, well, if Timmy's mom says it's okay, that's good enough for me. Number three, the curfew is just a general time to shoot for. It's not like I'm running a prison around here. Number two, I don't have a tissue with me. Just use your sleeve. And number one, don't bother wearing a jacket. The wind chill is bound to improve. Well, in our study through the book of Hebrews, we're looking in Hebrews chapter 11 at God's hall of fame. And last time we began to note the ones who get honorable mention in verse 32. Doesn't go into a lot of detail, just mentions these guys. Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David. We noted that the first four listed there come from the book of Judges. And we talked last week about Gideon and Barak. And this morning we come to the most popular of all the judges, and that's Samson. You may not know a lot about Barak or Jephthah, but everybody has heard of Samson. And so it's not surprising when we come back to the book of Judges to find out that that he gets more chapters about him than anyone else. He gets four. Chapters 13 to 16. And I want you to turn back to Judges chapter 13 this morning because that chapter really shows us the family that he is blessed to be born into. And I was excited because I thought, well, I need to get a Mother's Day message for today. But as I began to look at the passage and where we were in God's timing on this Mother's Day, Samson's parents are probably the best example of parenting in all of the Old Testament. And so. You parents that dedicated your children today, I want you to listen up because here is the standard for parenting. And of course, today we want to pay special tribute to mothers. A teacher gave her class of second graders a lesson on the magnet. She brought it in, showed how a magnet works and how it operates. And then the next day she gave them a written test and she included this question. My full name has six letters. The first one is M and I pick up things. What am I? They all flunked because instead of magnet, they put mother. Here's what some children wrote to their mothers on Mother's Day. Angie, eight years old, wrote, dear mother, I'm gonna make dinner for you on Mother's Day. It's going to be a surprise. P.S. I hope you like pizza and popcorn. Robert wrote, I got you a turtle for Mother's Day. I hope you like the turtle better than the snake I got you last year. Eileen wrote, Dear Mother, I wish Mother's Day wasn't always on Sunday. It would be better if it was on Monday, then I wouldn't have to go to school. Little Diane wrote, I hope you like the flowers I got you for Mother's Day, I picked them myself when Mr. Smith wasn't looking. And how about this one from Matt, Dear Mother, here are two aspirins, have a happy Mother's Day. Well, I've picked out six aspects of parenting that are underlined in this chapter, and I've listed them in your bulletin if you want to follow along. Number one is the parental privilege in verses 1 to 3. Notice verse 1. Now the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord, so that the Lord gave them into the hands of the Philistines 40 years. The Bible summarizes this period in Israel's history with the very last phrase and the very last verse in the book. It says, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. They followed Nike's advice. Just do it. And the pattern in this book is Israel would do evil. Then the Lord would give them over into the hands of their enemies. Then they would repent. And then he would raise up a judge. Now a judge was not like Judge Judy who has a robe and a gavel. These judges were deliverers that God raised up at this time. And on this occasion, they were in the hands of the Philistines. They were there for a long time, 40 years. Now, the Philistines were a seafaring people, and so they settled along the coast of the Mediterranean. They would one day give rise to another very familiar individual by the name of Goliath. The Philistines had great military uh, strength because they had learned how to smelt iron. And so, with their iron weapons, they could have easily wiped out Israel, but they didn't do that. Instead, the two main weapons they used were trade and intermarriage. If the Israelites wanted a plow or an axe, they had to come and trade with the Philistines. If they wanted to marry their sons or daughters, the Philistines had no objection. And so in both of these ways, the Philistines were gaining a stranglehold on the Israelites and slowly choking them to death by compromise and assimilation. Sound familiar? Those are the same tactics the enemy is using today. They are living in the same kind of society that we are living in. Paul Harvey describes the process an Eskimo uses to hunt down a wolf. He says, first the Eskimo coats his knife blade with animal blood and allows it to freeze. Then he adds another layer of blood and another until the blade is completely concealed by frozen blood. Next, the hunter fixes his knife in the ground with the blade up. When a wolf follows his sensitive nose to the source of the scent and discovers the bait, he licks it tasting the fresh frozen blood. He begins to lick faster, more and more vigorously, lapping the blade until the keen edge is bare. Feverishly now, harder and harder, the wolf licks the blade in the Arctic night. So great becomes his craving for blood that the wolf does not notice the razor sharp sting of the naked blade on his tongue, nor does he recognize the instant at which his insatiable thirst is being satisfied by his own warm blood. His carnivorous appetite just craves more and more and more until the dawn finds him dead in the snow. That was the tactic of the Philistines. Just a little taste, just a little lick, just a little compromise until you find yourself dead in the snow. Well, that's the pagan setting that these parents found themselves in. And you, as a parent, are living in that same territory. And in that setting, verse 2 says, There was a certain man of Zora of the family of the Danites, whose name was Manoah. And his wife was barren and he had no children. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman saint and said to her, Behold, now you are barren and have borne no children, but you shall conceive and give birth to a son. Now notice, here's the angel of the Lord. We've seen him recently. He appeared to Joshua. He appeared to Gideon. Who is this angel of the Lord? This is the pre-incarnate Christ. Jesus didn't begin at Bethlehem. He has existed forever. And when we see the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, it is the pre-existent Christ taking on a human body and appearing to people. And that's who it is here. And He comes to this woman who is unnamed, anonymous, and He prophesies that she will have a son. Now, why does God choose this couple? Well, I think there's a couple reasons. Number one is to fulfill prophecy verse 2 says her husband Manoah is a Danite in Genesis chapter 49 and verse 16 Jacob prophesied that Dan shall judge his people and this is the only judge from the tribe of Dan so God is fulfilling prophecy by choosing this couple from the tribe of Dan to bring this judge Samson into this world but not only Do they choose this or does God choose this couple to fulfill prophecy? But I think he also chooses this couple to defy logic. You see, this couple seems like a rather unlikely candidate for God to choose because Mrs. Manoa is barren. But you know, God loves to buck the odds. Have You ever noticed that a lot of great men in the Bible are born to women who can't have kids? Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Samuel, Samson, John the Baptist. The greatest example is Jesus. Why does God do that? I think because then the woman has no doubt that this child is not hers. When God comes to a woman who can't have children and says, I'm going to give you children, she realizes this is a privilege from the Lord. She realizes what Psalm 127 3 says children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. If you're a parent here this morning, I hope you've acknowledged that. I hope you see parenting as a privilege. Have you acknowledged that your child or your children are a gift from the Lord? Have you done what these parents have done this morning, maybe not publicly but privately, and dedicated them to the Lord, given them back to the Lord? That's where great parents begin. Second aspect is the parental pattern In verses 4 and 5, the angel of the Lord is still speaking, and he says in verse 4, Now therefore be careful not to drink wine or strong drink, nor eat any unclean thing. For behold, you shall conceive and give birth to a son, and no razor shall come upon his head. For the boy shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to deliver Israel from the hands of the Philistines. Now, a Nazarite, according to Numbers chapter 6, was sort of like the eagle scout of holiness. He was kind of the eagle scout of commitment to God. A normal Israelite man or woman could not be a priest because they only came from the, from the tribe of Levi, but they could take a Nazarite vow. The Hebrew word nazir means to separate. And usually this was done for a short period of time. During that time of commitment, they would take a vow which said they couldn't drink wine or strong drink, they couldn't even eat a grape, they would not use a razor to cut their hair, and they could not touch a dead body. And as a sign of their separation, and I think also to hold them accountable, they grew their hair long. And then at the end of their vow, they would cut all their hair off, And they would take their hair and burn it on the altar as a symbol of their total consecration to the Lord. That's what I did. There are three men in the Bible who are Nazarites from the womb. Three individuals who are Nazarites for life. Those three individuals are Samson here, Samuel and John the Baptist. But what I want you to notice this morning is this. This life of separation doesn't begin with Samson. It begins with his mother. Notice verse 4. Now therefore, speaking to her, now therefore be careful not to drink wine or strong drink nor any unclean thing. For behold, you shall conceive and give birth to a son and no razor will come upon his head. He will be a Nazarite to God you see it starts with the mother in other words God is saying to her you have to set the pattern you have to practice what you preach that's a great principle for parents don't tell your kid to be different if you're not different don't tell your kid to be separate and not to compromise with this world if you're compromising. See, your kids are not just listening to what you say, they are watching what you do. And as a parent, you should be able to say, as James said last week, you should be able to say to your kids, imitate me as I am imitating Christ. I read a quote this week that said, parents often talk about the younger generation as if they didn't have anything to do with it. I would say that you have a lot to do with it because you are influencing them by the pattern of your life. Third aspect is the parental petition in verses 6 to 8. Notice verse 6, Then the woman came and told her husband, saying, A man of God came to me, and his appearance was like the appearance of the angel of God. Very awesome. Now she says, I I saw this guy and he was awesome. He he looked almost like you would expect the angel of God to look, but he wasn't the angel of God, I don't think. I think he was just a man of God. And then she says, and I did not ask him where he came from, nor did he tell me his name. Now, I think she's just anticipating what her qu- husband's going to ask her. Because he's going to say, well, you think. Did you ask him where he came from? Did you ask him what his name is? She says, no, I didn't ask any of those things. But what I do know is this, verse 7. Behold, you shall conceive. He said, behold, you shall conceive and give birth to a son... And now you shall not drink wine or strong drink, nor eat any unclean thing, for the boy shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. Now if your wife came to you and said, a man of God came to me and told me we're going to have a child and he's going to be a Nazarite unto God, you might question that. What I like about Manoah is he doesn't question that. Instead, what does he do? How does he respond? Look at verse 8. Then Manoah entreated the Lord and said, O Lord, please let the man of God whom you have sent come to us again that he may teach us what to do for the boy who is to be born. Now, this is what a parent should do. He entreats the Lord to come back and show him how to raise this boy. He says, God, it's not enough that you just said we're going to have a baby. I want you to come back and show me how to raise this child. This is what every parent should be saying. Help! God, help me! Now what I like is... This guy isn't waiting until his teenager is out of control to say, help me. When is he saying, help me? He's saying, help me before his child is even born. God, I realize that parenting is a huge responsibility and I don't have a clue how to do it. So you need to come back and show me what to do. Parents, if you haven't said, help me, then you're not a good parent. Irma Bombeck writes, For the first four or five years after I had children, I considered motherhood a temporary condition, not a calling. It was a time of life set aside for exhaustion and long hours, but it would pass. Then one afternoon, with three kids in tow, I came out of the supermarket pushing a cart with four wheels that went in opposite directions. My toddler son got away from me. Just outside the door, he ran toward a machine holding bubble gum in a glass dome. In a voice that could have shattered the glass, he shouted, Gimme, gimme. I told him I would give him what for if he didn't stop shouting and get in the car. As I physically tried to pry his body from around the bubble gum machine, he pulled the entire thing over. Glass and balls of bubble gum went all over the parking lot. We had now attracted a sizable crowd. I told him he would never see a cartoon as long as he lived. And if he didn't control his temper, he was going to be making license plates for the state. He tried to stifle his sobs as he looked around at the staring crowd. Then he did something that I was to remember for the rest of my life. In his helpless quest for comfort, he turned to the only one he trusted his emotions with, me. He threw his arms around my knees and held on for dear life. I had humiliated him, chastised him, and berated him, but I was still all he had. That single incident defined my role I was a major force in this child's life. If you're a parent, you need to realize that too. You are a major force in your child's life. And so you had better figure out what you're supposed to be doing. You had better show your dependence upon the Lord. You better be saying, God, help me. That's the parental petition. And then the fourth aspect is the parental priority in verses 9 to 14. Notice verse 9. God listened to the voice of Manoah, and the angel of God came again to the woman as she was sitting in the field, but Manoah, her husband, was not with her. Now I like this, because God is so good. He, He asks God to come back, send the man back, And he hears the prayer and he responds. Now what I find interesting is Manoah asked him to come back and he came back to the woman, the wife. You say, why did he come back to the wife? Well, not to be offensive to you husbands, but throughout this passage, Manoah is a little slower than his wife. And I think we'll see in a few verses why God came to her rather than to him. But she came... She came to the woman, and so verse 10 says, So the woman ran quickly and told her husband, Behold, the man who came the other day has appeared to me. Then Manoah arose and followed his wife, and when he came to the man, he said, Are you the man who spoke to the woman? And he said, I am. Are you the guy? I am. Then verse 12, Manoah said, Now when your words come to pass, what shall be the boy's mode of life and his vocation? Now this is why I think, he came to the wife because she runs and tells her husband and here's his chance he's got a chance to ask God a question and what's his question what will his life be like and what will be his occupation where should I send him to grad school and what's the answer look at verse 13 So the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Let the woman pay attention to all that I said. She should not eat anything that comes from the vine, nor drink wine or strong drink, nor eat any unclean thing. Let her observe all that I commanded. Now, is there any new information in that answer? No. He's saying, don't worry about what he does for a living. I want him to be holy. That's the priority. You know, it amazes me to see Christian parents that have their kids' college funds started early. They're proud of their child's brain. They want their child to become a very successful person. But they say, you know, I can't afford to send my child to Christian camp. My my, my child is too busy with sports to come to church. What is your priority? You see, it doesn't matter if your child has great talents and you exploit those talents into an impressive degree and a wonderful job. If your kid ends up A talented, gifted, wealthy, successful, unkind, sharp tongued, unholy, worthless human being. We want to be able to say, My son's a doctor, my daughter's a lawyer, because it strokes our ego. But you know, that issue isn't even on God's FAQ page. This guy asks God what his son is going to do for a living, and God doesn't even answer that question. That question isn't even in the realm of, 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 of his attention. Because God is saying, I don't care what he does for a living, I want him to be whole. It may shock some of you when I say this, but what your son or daughter ends up doing for a living has no real eternal significance. So don't focus on maximizing their secular skills because those things are virtually meaningless. Focus on maximizing their spiritual potential and then when it comes to their living, who cares? Manoah says, what will be his occupation? And God says, who cares? I want him to be holy. That is the parental priority and then the fifth aspect is the parental posture in verses 15 to 22 notice verse 15 then Manoah said to the angel of the Lord please let us detain you so that we may prepare a young goat for you now they don't know this is the angel of the Lord they just think they want to honor this man of God and they want to give him a meal now I think there's an important lesson in that Feed the preacher. (laughs) You see it right there. Notice the response of verse 16. The angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Though you detain me, I will not eat your food. Why not? Because divine beings don't need food. I love the verse in Psalm 50, verse 12, where God says, if I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all it contains. So He says, though you detain Me, I will not eat your food, but if you prepare a burnt offering, then offer it to the Lord. A burnt offering. That's what you give to God. So He's saying, I don't want supper, but I will take a sacrifice. I don't want your hospitality, but I will take your worship. Now I'm sure that made Manoah step back a little bit because the end of verse 16 says, for Manoah did not know that this was the angel of the Lord. Verse 17, so Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, what is your name? so that when your words come to pass, we may honor you. He says, excuse me, sir, what is your name? Now, that's a good practice. Whenever anybody asks you to worship them, you should ask them what their name is. So he says, what's your name? And notice the response, verse 18. But the angel of the Lord said to him, why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? That's the Hebrew word Pele. P-E-L-E. The soccer player took that name, but he shouldn't have had it. Pele means incomprehensible. It's the same word used in Isaiah 9, 6, where it says, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Pele. You see, this name is used of Jesus because that's who this is in Judges chapter 13. In Psalm 139, David says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. Such knowledge is too pale for me. It is too high. I cannot attain it. It is too wonderful. It's too incomprehensible. In Genesis 18-14, God said to Abraham and Sarah, you're going to have a child. And Sarah laughed. And God said, is anything to Pele for the Lord? You see, it's a word that means high, lifted up, exalted, beyond us. He says, I don't want a meal. I want a sacrifice. And Manoah says, what's your name? And he says, my name is Pele. My name is Incomprehensible. You can't figure me out. So just worship me. And then verse 19. So Manoah took the young goat with the grain offering and offered it on the rock to the Lord. And he performed wonders while Manoah and his wife looked on. What kind of wonders? The kind in verse 20. For it came about when the flame went up from the altar toward heaven, that the angel of the Lord ascended in the flame of the altar. He says, I'm wonderful. And now he shows it. And notice the response at the end of verse 20. When Manoah and his wife saw this, they fell on their faces to the ground. Now the angel of the Lord did not appear to Manoah or his wife again. Then Manoah knew that this was the angel of the Lord. So Manoah said to his wife, We will surely die, for we have seen God. That's what Jacob said when he wrestled with the angel of the Lord. I have seen God, and I'm not dead. You see, this couple has a recognition of the holiness of God. They have a recognition of the awesomeness of God. Parents, would you look at the end of verse 20 and understand that this is the parental posture? You're to be prostrate before the Lord. You're to be face down on the ground before Him. Have your kids ever walked into a room and laid eyes on mom and dad holding hands on their knees before the Lord? And they just kind of hush and they back out of the room. Samson saw that. I hope your kids see that. I hope your kids quarrel over your Bible when you're gone. Because it's got ink marks and notations of the way God has spoken to you. And tear stains. Because it's a place where you have worshipped the Lord. You say, well, I thought the parental posture was... I thought the parental posture was... No. The parental posture is face down on the ground in worship before the Lord. Finally, we see the parental perspective in verses 23 to 25. And I see four things that mark the parental perspective. You may be able to pick out more. Number one, parents need to understand that God is loving. Manoah says in verse 22, we're going to die because we've seen God. Notice what his wife says in verse 23. But his wife said to him, if the Lord had desired to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering from our hands, nor would He have shown us all these things, nor would He have let us hear things like this at this time. He understands the holiness and wrath of God. His wife understands the love of God. And I think that's somewhat of a universal characteristic. Men understand wrath. Women understand love. I think that's why someone said it's, if it's true that girls are inclined to marry men like their fathers, it's understandable why mothers cry so much at their weddings. Again, in this passage, this husband's a little slow. So he says, we've seen God. We're going to die. And she says, dear, if he was going to kill us, he probably wouldn't have accepted our sacrifice and made promises to us. And he says, oh yeah, you're right. See, that's good logic. Next time you get to thinking maybe God is against you and doesn't love you anymore, think about this. If he didn't love you, he probably wouldn't have given his life for you and made promises to you that are eternal. Number one, parental perspective. God is loving. Number two, the future is bright. Look at verse 24. Then the woman gave birth to a son and named him Samson. You know what Samson means? Samson means son. S-U-N. Just as the rising of the sun brings the hope of a new day, the birth of Samson brought new hope for the nation and for this family. And so when a child is born, there's this sense of great potential. And parents should hold that. And then a third perspective is that parents need to realize that they can't do the whole job. Look at verse 24. The rest of it says, And the child grew up, and the Lord blessed him. And the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him. Parents, you can raise a child, but only the Lord can bless him. And only the Spirit of the Lord can stir him. So you have to realize you can't do the whole job. That's why you need to come back to being dependent upon the Lord. Because you do the raising, God does the blessing. And God does the moving by His Spirit. And then let me add one final perspective. Parents need to know that kids can break your heart. This is a wonderful setting. Great parents and blessed child. We read this and we're expecting some exciting things to happen. Got these wonderful parents dependent on God. We've got this child who's blessed by the Lord. The Spirit of God is working upon him. We think we're going to see acts of deliverance and glory and beauty, but that's not going to happen. How many of you named your child Samson? None of you. You might have named your bulldog Samson. but not your son. I mean, we've dedicated a lot of children up here. I don't ever remember a Samson. Why not? Because beginning in chapter 14 and verse 1, this kid undoes everything. Chapter 14, verse 1 says he, he goes down and he sees a woman and he comes back to his parents and says it's a Philistine woman. I want her. And his parents said, that's wrong. You shouldn't have her. And the end of verse 3 says, get her for me because she looks good. What's he doing? He's compromising. This story is kind of like listening to beautiful music on a record player and then somebody hits the needle. And we got beautiful music in chapter 13. We get to chapter 14. It's like... Samson came from a great family. He was blessed by God. He looks like a hero. But we're going to see next week that he is the king of compromise. And I'm sure when Samson got to the end of his life in chapter 16, verse 21, where he was grinding grain in a Philistine prison, he had to be saying to himself, if I had just listened to my parents. The saddest words and thought are pen, what might have been. It's tough being a parent. These people seem to have done everything right. And they still got their hearts broken. Well, parents, do you recognize parenting as a privilege? Are you realizing that you need to set the pattern for your children to follow? Are you making the right petition to God to help you be the parent you should be? Do you have the right priority for your children, their holiness? Are you showing the right posture, prostrate in worship before the Lord? And do you understand the right perspective that it's not all your work, it's God's work? And then kids, which we all are, if you've ever broken your mother's heart, just a little bit, be sure and make amends today by telling her how much you appreciate her. Irma Bombeck said, I've always told my kids the easiest part of being a mother is giving birth. The hardest part is showing up for it each day. Mother's Day is traditionally the day when children give something back to their mothers for all the spit they produce to wash dirty faces, all the old gum they held in their hands, all the noses they wipe, and all the bloody knees they make well with a kiss. This is the day mothers are rewarded for washing all those sheets in the middle of the night, driving kids to school when they miss the bus, and enduring all the football games in the rain. It's Appreciation Day for making your children finish something they said they couldn't do, not believing them when they said, I hate you, and sharing their good times and their bad. Their cards probably won't reflect it, but what they're trying to say is, thank you for showing up. Somebody said it takes about six weeks to get back to normal after you've had a baby. That somebody doesn't know that once you're a mother, normal is history. Somebody said you learn how to be a mother by instinct. That somebody never took a three-year-old shopping. Somebody said being a mother is boring. That somebody never rode in a car driven by a teenager with a driver's permit. Somebody said, if you're a good mother, your child will turn out good. That somebody thinks a child comes in a box with directions and a guarantee. Somebody said, good mothers never raise their voices. That somebody never came out the back door just in time to see her child hit a golf ball through the neighbor's kitchen window. Somebody said you don't need an education to be a mother. That somebody never helped a fourth grader with his math. Somebody said you can't love the fifth child as much as you love the first. That somebody doesn't have more than one child. Somebody said a mother can find all the answers to her child rearing questions in books. That somebody never had a child stuff beans up his nose. Somebody said the hardest part of being a mother is labor and delivery. That somebody never watched her baby get on the bus for the first day of kindergarten. Somebody said a mother can stop worrying after her child gets married. That somebody doesn't know that marriage adds a new son or daughter-in-law to a mother's heartstrings. Somebody said a mother's job is done when her child leaves home. That somebody never had grandchildren. And somebody said your mother knows you love her, so you don't need to tell her. That somebody isn't a mother. Be sure and tell your mom today how much you appreciate her. I'm going to have Cade Bullinger step up here.